Hey there, this is Pastor John Ware, lead pastor of Lifehouse Newport News, a church that exists to help all people experience life change through Christ. Thank you for joining us today on our podcast. We hope it inspires you and gives you perspective to see how God is moving in your life. Now let's get to today's episode. So let me ask you a quick question. Have you ever had a song that got you through a particular season? I mean, maybe it was a love song that, you know, you uh, thought of when you held your spouse maybe before deployment or maybe a song that helped you get through a tough time in your life. Uh, Maybe as you were battling cancer or maybe dealing with the death of a loved one. Or maybe it was, you know, that particular song that was able to say the words that in the perfect way that you just couldn't quite articulate, but it was perfect. I mean, truth is, is that regardless of whatever song we're talking about, songs have the power to inspire, motivate, articulate our feelings, bring comfort and joy and perspective and so much more. So the question is, what song would you use to describe this season that we find ourselves right now in America? I mean, many of us are confronted right now with economic challenges. We're facing a tsunami of mental health issues. We're dealing with racism and social injustice. I mean, and and, and a once in a lifetime pandemic. So what song would you choose to help us get through this season that we find ourselves in? So you see in the Bible, there are a book of songs called Psalms. It's a book of 150 songs compiled by the nation of Israel. These songs were written by the nation for them as they went through many, many seasons, seasons of turmoil, seasons of unity, disunity, lament. There were, there were songs of blessing, even songs about the messianic king, Jesus, coming. But God used these songs to rebuke, to give clarity, bring gladness, repentance, joy, and and even so much more. And as we look ahead and we consider us as Christ followers, how we will navigate the turbulent times ahead, let's pick a song from those songs, songs for the seasons. So if I had to pick a song, I would pick the song of unity. You see, We all need unity. Tell your neighbor, we need a song of unity. Unity, simply defined, is really just the state of being one. I mean, total parts combined as one, acting as one unit. I mean, think about it. When you go to take a step, your whole entire body comprised of over 2,000 parts all work together. Those different work together to make sure that when you go to take that step, that you don't fall down, amen? This is why we love sports, because we all get to get together, and we're all from different backgrounds, and yet with one goal in mind. Even the strength of a nation is built on unity. Think about our nation, the United States. So why is unity so very important? Because honestly, it really means our survival. I mean, think about it. Jesus said that a house divided cannot stand. And yet knowing this, historically, unity has been one of man's biggest challenge 
throughout all of history. MLK said that man has suffered from a poverty of spirit, which stands in glaring contrast to his technological and scientific advances. We've learned how to fly like the birds. We've learned how to swim the seas like fish. Yet we have, haven't learned how to walk the earth as brothers and sisters. But let me tell you something. God is no stranger to division or discord. We find this even in the Garden of Eden. When Adam had sinned, God came down and said, Adam, who told you that when you was naked? Adam points and said, this woman that you gave me. And then he looks at the woman and the woman says, well, it was the serpent who beguiled me. Even here we see division at the beginning of creation. There was division in the wilderness when the children of Israel were in the wilderness. And they were confronting Moses about whether or not Moses thought he was doing too much. Even in the kingdom of Israel. There came a time where the kingdom split into two different kingdoms. But let me tell you something. There's something about division. The division that racism brings. You see, racism is defined as the belief that groups of humans possess different behavioral traits corresponding to their physical appearance and can be divided based on superiority of one race over another. This oftentimes manifests itself in prejudice, discrimination, or even antagonism against that particular person or people group based off of their membership or ethnicity in that group, typically against one that is a minority or the marginalized. Now look, before you dismiss this, let me tell you that this is not about politics, but it's about people. As such, even Jesus addressed this in his teachings, racism really is a matter of the heart. I mean, it gets to the core of who it is that we really are. It stealthily weaves itself as we look at people. I mean, it's the way that we, we, we feel when someone comes into the elevator and you clutch your purse. Or you see a person walking in a hoodie across the street, or let alone you're on an airplane and you see a person get onto the plane with a turban. I mean, there's something about racism that, that, that weaves itself into our judgments and, and to our thoughts and actions that it creates this lens in which we have a jaded view of people, sometimes without us even knowing because it feels so natural. I mean, I wasn't even trying to think those things, yet I did. But let me tell you, as Jesus is the response to sin to reconcile us back to God, he is yet the same response and the same answer that it will take to reconcile us all together to overcome hate, fear, and even the own biases that we have in our hearts. Today, we need to sing a song of unity. Psalms 133 says, see how good and pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head that ran down on the beard, even Aaron's beard, that came down to the edge of his robe. Like the dew of Hermon that comes down on the hills of Zion, for there God gives the, his commanded blessing, even life forevermore. You see, unity pleases God. The word of God says that unity is good 
and it is pleasant. It is ordained by the Lord. In fact, Jesus prayed for it in John 17, 20 through 21. He asked God that this prayer that he prayed before he went to the cross wasn't just for, for them alone, but that they, those that would come, that, they, that we would be one even as Jesus and the Father were one, that we all would be to, together and be unified. So you see, unity matters to God, and truth be told, it should matter to us. Jesus left heaven for unity, to, for, to bridge the gap between God and man. He prayed for unity, for the church. He rose for unity, that God's promise to us would be fulfilled. So why didn't do we argue so much? Why are we fighting? And why is unity so hard? Plainly put, is that we're selfish. You see, our own selfish, sinful, self-centered nature has created this me-first society that breeds more selfishness. We're always the one that got to be first or have more than or be better than. And the worst probably is that we, we think that we're always right. And every man in his own eyes thinks that he is right. And that his, 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 that his plight is noble. Throughout time, man has built these systems to help benefit himself more than others, oftentimes at the expense of others. Sometimes these systems have oppressed, enslaved, but ultimately always were divisive. These were the very systems that Jesus himself fought against and that we as believers should fight against as well. This oftentimes put Jesus at odds with the religious leaders of his day because they built a system that propped themselves up but did not benefit those of whom they were supposed to be serving. The Hebrews had a system in which their socioeconomic, the, the socioeconomics of a person may put them in the back and not the front, that they would consider someone to be better than, well, themselves to be better than the other based off of where they were born. This Jesus was against. You see, the gospel, the good news, is in direct opposition to these types of systemic oppressive ideologies. I mean, the gospel levels the playing field. Jesus came down and died for every single person because truth is all men have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So if we put ourselves over another person, then how can we preach the gospel to them that all people have been saved did jesus die just for some or did he die for all but we as a church have to get this thing right amen let's look at the good samaritan in luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 29 it reads on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test jesus teacher he asked what must i do to inherit eternal life what is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus said. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, so he asked, who is and who is my neighbor? Now, real quick, just to let y'all know the rest of this story. Jesus tells this parable after he asked these questions. 
The parable is about a Hebrew man that was walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, common path that they would take. While walking to Jericho, he was overtaken by some thieves. They took his money, they took his clothes, they beat him half to death. He thought the man was dead. A priest walked by, saw him, and walked to the other side of the street. A Levite, Hebrew, saw him, walked to the other side of the street. But a Samaritan saw him, and the Bible says that he had compassion on him. He reached down, bound his wounds up, took him to the inn, told the innkeeper to take care of him, and that when he returned, he would pay him back whatever it took for the man to recover. Now, the important thing to look here is that first, the lawyer stood up and he tempted Jesus or tested, as the scriptures say. Do not be, do not be surprised by people at church that aren't necessarily believers. The Bible tells us that the kingdom of God is like a tree in which the fowls of the air took residence in. Not everybody that's in the building is a part of the body. We get frustrated when we see people that are in church that aren't necessarily a part of the church, but God told us that it was going to be like this. This man knew what the word of God said, yet his heart was not one to believe. I mean, after all, he was a lawyer, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that the God of this world has blinded some of them from being able to see the glorious light of the gospel. Understand that this parable was a response to this man's question. You see, context is key. Many times we look at this, we look at this parable and we think that this parable is about random acts of kindness, but it is not. The parable is actually about racism. Putting this in context, we see here that the Hebrews hated the Samaritans. It was better in Hebrew culture, it was better to be a prostitute or even a tax collector, all of which they hated. It was better to be those things than it was to be a Samaritan. So why? The Samaritans were half Hebrew and they, they were half Hebrew, dating all the way back from when the Israelites came out of the wilderness and conquered the land of Canaan. They were supposed to drive out all of the tribes and all the residents there, but what they did was they mixed with them. And as time went on, the Hebrews, the full-blooded Hebrews, never really truly accepted the Samaritans as full brothers and sisters, but considered them to be outcasts. They were divided in every sense of the, of the word. Think about the woman at the well. When Jesus runs into the woman at the well that was a Samaritan, the first, he asked her for something to drink. She responds and says, why do you ask me for water? You are a Hebrew and I am a Samaritan and we don't have any dealings with each other. I mean, and then when we see the disciples walk, run up to Jesus as he was talking to her, even then they were surprised that he sat and talked to her. You see, their social construct and their way of life was that division was culturally acceptable. Now, I don't think that every single Jew hated the Samaritans, but we have to wonder why or how many people questioned the treatment of this entire people group. We as Christians, we can't be bystanders any longer. We must use our voices today to speak out against what we know is wrong. So Jesus makes the one that the lawyer hated the hero of the story. Which was the neighbor, he asked. 
the one who showed mercy. Then Jesus says, go and do the same. Notice that the lawyer didn't even say the Samaritan was the good neighbor. Instead, he said the one who showed mercy. He knew the truth, but his heart wasn't changed. It's not enough to know the truth. We have to believe and have faith, and that faith be shown through our actions. Amen? So look, back to the woman. Jesus knew that both the Samaritans and the Hebrews, though they may not have got along, they were both looking for the Messiah. And after revealing to her that he was, in fact, the Messiah, she went and told the entire city that she had found the Messiah. Come and see a man that told me everything about myself. So then this, the people of the city come out. And first they believe because of our own testimony, but then they believe because they had encountered Jesus for themselves. I mean, imagine the joy. Imagine the exuberance of the people of the city. They weren't even allowed to worship with the Hebrews, but yet the Messiah had come to them. Jesus had validated the Samaritans. He gave them value, and he did not have to devalue the Hebrews in order to do it. Jesus broke many of the Jewish customs and rabbi norms in order to love those that were cast down and cast out. And truth is, we must do the same. We have to reach out to those that are broken, whether white, black, Asian, Hispanic. We don't, doesn't matter if they're poor in spirit, broken, depressed, or social outcasts, those that are the least of these. We must reach out to them and love them as Jesus did. We have to see past the pain, see past the hurt. We have to see past the, the, the fleshly things that our eyes see in order to see the humanity in people. Truly, Jesus was an agent of unity, and we must do the same. But don't forget the purpose of this parable. It was the response to who is my neighbor and what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, how we treat people is a direct indicator of our relationship with God. And you see here, we can't fake this. Jesus said, what we do to the least of these, we do even unto him. You see, the proof of our love for God and each other is, regardless of color, creed, or socioeconomic status, is the asset test for whether we are the people of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 13 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone that loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we love, that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. He has given us his spirit. So God loves us. He sent Jesus. Those of us that have confessed Christ and are forgiven, we have God's Holy Spirit, which compels us to love our neighbor. But see, the rest, of that, the rest of that chapter says that if we do not love our neighbor, 
Let's look at what the scripture says in verse 19 through 21. We love because he loved, first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother and sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. You see, this word puts the church claim to love God to the test. I mean, we don't get to choose our family. Likewise, we don't get to choose who our brother or our sister is either. And as a church, we got to understand this and get this right because we as a church have the answer to unity. Jesus, knowing that our brother is black, white, rich, poor, ignorant, intelligent, or maybe wise or even foolish, those that are protesting and those that wear blue. Our brother and our sister is every one of them. And truth be told, we might all have to repent for this because I'm sure in some way, shape, form, or fashion, we failed in this department somewhere. So whether you've been the victim or the perpetrator of racism, the question still remains, will you love your brother? Will you love your neighbor? Paul said that we should examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. Right now, some of us are angry when we see these protests. Some of us are disgusted when we see the words Black Lives Matter, let alone the true meaning. Others are irate at the police, irate with those who say all lives matter. Some of us are mad at government officials and really truly anyone who does not agree with us. But what about you? What nerve did that strike? What's rising up within you even now when I say those things? Does your heart convict you? Is this me? Do I really love my neighbor? Our first response is really actually typically to deny. I mean, internally we know the difference between right and wrong, but there's something that's revealing about the truth when we encounter it. And it's hard to accept sometimes when God's word exposes us for who it is that we really are. But we have to check ourselves and remember what God's word says and line up with it. God commands us to love him and to love our neighbors, our enemies, our strangers, to love what is good, to love mercy, to love what is just. How? With our heart, mind, soul, and strength in sincerity, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to love in deed, not just word, without hypocrisy, and most of all, without fear. And I know that's uncomfortable for some of us. But this discomfort is the place where we start to see God and see ourselves clearly. This is the place where deliverance can take place. Jesus challenged the priests and the Pharisees of his day. His words exposed the heart of them, and they wanted to kill Jesus for it. But Jesus wasn't trying to guilt them into changing. He wanted them to be free. Free from sin, selfishness, and the prideful spirit, which makes us enemy of God. And yet, and still, Jesus still died for those that wanted him dead. So the question remains, am I a child of God, or am I just pretending? My love, or lack thereof, will tell the truth. 
no matter what my words say. And while unity seems so far off during these times and such a difficult thing to attain to, one thing that we must never forget, he got up. Truth is, Jesus got up. And there's blood on the cross for you, and there's blood on the cross for me. And because of this truth, there's hope for a better today and a better tomorrow. There's hope for unity, that God's love will unite. That greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And God's love will bring us together even stronger and is stronger than the hate that would divide us. So look, we can't be silent or sit the sideline or disappear in the background. But we must choose to stand up for what is right, for what God says is right. We must decide to love because God first loved. We must decide to forgive because the debt of sin is, is paid. We must decide to reconcile because God has called all people of all nations to himself to be unified in him. So let's talk forgiveness. I know it's hard to forgive these days. I mean, people are confused, frustrated, and shocked. We find this stuff about our family members and our friends that we never knew about. Some of these things have opened up really, really deep wounds and caused divisions even in our families and even the church. And I know it hurts and it's hard to articulate how deep it is and how much it hurts. And we, but we must have the courage to engage. We must have the patience to engage. You see, the worst thing that we can do to someone that has been broken or someone that has been violated is tell them that their experience did not happen or that it wasn't real or that it's not a big deal or even worse, just get over it. I mean, how quickly should a woman that has been raped or a child that has been molested, how long do they have to grieve? How much pain do they get to experience before someone tells them, that's it, that's enough? As cold as that sounds, what it does is it invalidates their pain and it, dehuman it dehumanizes them. But instead, we need to be led by the Spirit of God and be compassionate and empathetic towards those who are in pain or mourning. Scripture tells us that we should mourn with those that mourn. We should rejoice with those that rejoice. We should feel each other's pain, esteem others higher than ourselves, bear one another's burdens. And let me personally say to Pastor John, Andy, Robert, Christian, and all my other white brothers and sisters who have reached out, marched, and even spoken out, your outpour of love and support has not gone unnoticed and will never be forgotten. Now let's consider Jesus. He was no stranger to pain. Hebrews 4, 15 tells us that we don't have a high priest that cannot relate to our infirmities, our infirmities and our weaknesses. Jesus was wrongly persecu persecuted, wrongly betrayed, and even executed. He resisted sin even to death and was known as a man of sorrows. Truly, Jesus gets it. And yet he modeled love and forgiveness as a standard for us to follow. And look, none of us deserve salvation, no matter how good we are. It is the gift of God. So and even while on the cross, Jesus still prayed to God that God would forgive those who called for his death. And even now forgives us for our confessed sin. Jesus is the authority on this thing. And in Matthew 6, he tells us that we need to forgive. We have to forgive so that our Heavenly Father will forgive us. 
Because if we do not forgive others of their trespasses and their sins against us, then we truly cannot be forgiven. We have to remember the cross. We have been forgiven for so much more than what it is that we, than, than others have done to us. You see, love covers a multitude of sin. And it breeds mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. But see, unforgiveness, see, unforgiveness breeds bitterness. And bitterness, anger, and anger, wrath. It turns and that wrath worketh not the righteousness of God. And it produces a cold and harsh heart. This is how people get, that are broken stay broken and never get free. You see, forgiveness keeps us free. Else, Satan gets a two-for-one deal. We have to remember that we're not fighting against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6 says, but against demonic forces and rulers of darkness. We have to recognize that we're not, we have to recognize who the real enemy is. It is Satan who wishes to steal, kill, and destroy us, all of us. And yes, I know 400 years is a lot. 400 plus years of slavery is a long, long time. But we cannot become the hate that we hate. We must love, forgive, and reconcile because Jesus did. You see, reconcile means to bring back together. You may ask, why in the world, what is my role in all of this? And why does this even concern me? Because 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 through 19 says that all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Here we see that Jesus was the bridge between God and man and charges us with the same thing. It is the very thing that the gospel and the Great Commission is hinged on. The fact that the church job is to mature, to love, equip, and bring everyone into the unity of the faith. Jesus told the Hebrews and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Yes, you have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you to love your enemies. People out here getting canceled for saying some ignorant things and sometimes for saying, you know, things out of hate too. But look, not every bad or ignorant statement is said with malicious intent. This is a good time to be asking more questions than it, and than it is to be making more statements. So what gain is it, as the scriptures say, to love those who only love you? How do we know that God's love is great? Because he loved those that hated him, misunderstood plotted against, denied, mistreated, and even crucified him. This is how we know that God's love for, it was, is great. Not because he loved those that loved him, but because he loved those who did not. God's love is patient. It is kind, and it is full of grace. And when we love others the way that God loves them, the Word of God says that then we have the heart of the Father then we will prove that we are the children of God. For it is by the love that we have for one another that people will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, believers have the Spirit of God. 
and have the heart of God. What impact we have on a person when they encounter undeserved love, forgiveness, and reconciliation. It's not normal, but it's overwhelming and proves that God is real. When the people of God call by his name love like God loves. You see, unity is like a ship. It's made with love like the wood. It's strengthened and reinforced with forgiveness like tar and glue. It withstands the toughness of the seas like reconciliation. And Jesus did all of this. And we must do the same. You see, conflict can be a launch pad to enormous growth. To my white brothers and sisters, take some time to sit down with us and listen to us. Hear our hearts, feel our pain and our frustration and the fear that we have for our own lives and that of our own children. Stand with us. And be sensitive, empathetic, and informed. And don't compare. To my black brothers and sisters, love those who do not agree. Be patient and forgive those who don't see or even understand. Offense is an event, but offended is a choice. And if we stay there, it becomes bondage. Because unity isn't just some buzzword. It literally means our survival. So let's deal with our racial biases. Let's question the origin of them. Let's repent to God and have the heart and the mind of Jesus Christ who loved everyone. Jesus ain't coming back for white people, black people, or even brown people. Jesus is coming back for God's children. Who is that? Those that love God and love their neighbor. How good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. One day in heaven, we will see it. As it says in Revelations 5 verse 9, they sung a new song. They sung a new song to God. In Revelation 7, 9, it tells us that one day, one day, there will be a great multitude standing before the Lord. All nations, all tongues, all people unified, standing in their white robes, declaring that Jesus is King. But why wait until then? Let's do the work and sing the song of unity now. Thank you again for joining us on the Lifehouse Newport News podcast. If you're ever in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to join us at one of our live worship experiences at 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. at the Regal Kiln Creek Movie Theaters. Until then, feel free to check us out at www.theaterchurchnn.com or on any social media platform. Thank you so much, and God bless.